What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Andy and it's Sunday night and uh, I hope your weekend has been outstanding. V and I did a lot of hiking and saw some unbelievable vistas and waterfalls. Very, very cool. So I hope your weekend has been good. We're going to go ahead and get right into it. And here's the question I want to start off with. How does Christianity look different than Judaism? What's our answer? Well, that kind of depends on which brands of Christianity and Judaism you might be considering. What we might see today might look somewhat different than what we saw back in the first century. So what made Christianity so unique back then? The closer we look at what is happening in Acts, the better we can identify the very unique nature of the Spirit-led, Christ-centered life. And I've got to tell you, I am revved up about today's episode because I get to share what a discussion might have looked like coming from some of the early apostles. Barnabas arrives at Antioch, and before meeting with the local church, he stays at the home of a younger couple in the Jewish section of town. Alongside a rushing spring that cuts through a narrow and twisting ravine, Barnabas walks on a road surrounded by forest, plant life, and natural beauty. Seeing a clearing in the trees just ahead, Barnabas takes a few more steps toward the clearing and sees a large volcanic mountain that rises to the sky. Breathing deeply, Barnabas takes in the multi-sensory experience, the fresh smell of trees and flowers and the clean sounds of the wind and a nearby bubbling stream and the beauty of the enormous peak are just too wonderful to describe. Overwhelmed by so much beauty, Barnabas spins around and yells out in joy, Thank you, Lord. This is amazing. Treasuring these small moments, Barnabas continues to move along the road. Within two hours, he approaches a pass that opens his view to the large valley below. Antioch, finally, Barnabas says aloud, or at least I'm getting close. Picking up his pace along the road, Barnabas quickly descends into the valley below and begins to encounter locals in their daily routines. To the right of the road and the Orontes River, which winds through the valley, Barnabas comes upon a large public work in progress, a multi-arched aqueduct under construction. As he nears the city, other works of Roman development appear to be in the beginning stages. Some 350 miles north of Jerusalem, a worn-out Barnabas has spent more than 20 days on the road, checking in with local home churches and believers along the way. While chanting a psalm, Barnabas walks along the outlying homes with small farms, getting ever closer to the larger city. "'I will exalt you, my God and King,' And praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. 
Arriving in a large Jewish section of town known as the Karatean, a noticeably Jewish Barnabas is welcomed with a high level of hospitality by his own people, greeting by those passing in the streets. Happening upon a street, with a number of residences situated on either side, Barnabas sees a man frantically moving about under the patio of his home, waving his arms. At first, Barnabas wonders, are you trying to get my attention? If so, you really have an odd way of doing so. Slowly walking over to the patio, he keeps watching to see what might develop. Oblivious to an encroaching Barnabas, the man stands without warning. With focused attention, he runs towards a wall on the other side of the covered porch. Arms extended while he runs, he quickly reaches out to grab at... What is he grabbing at, Barnabas muses as he ducks his head to see the back side of the porch. Slapping the other part of the back wall, the man yells victoriously. Got it! Yes! A door leading to the home abruptly opens and a woman yells out. What are you doing, Eliashib? Ignoring the pleading of the woman who appears to be his wife, a confident Eliashib removes his hands to identify his quarry. Nothing. Yelling out several expletives, a psychotic Eliashib moves from perturbed to obsessed. Stupid moth, come on, land! It doesn't. The woman at the door sighs and relents. Knowing she will not gain Eliashib's attention, she shakes her head and heads back into the home. Muttering to himself, Eliashib returns to his seat while stewing over the thought of the moth ruining his flower. Oh God, why do moths even exist? To be the bane of my existence? If I have one life goal, it will be to rid the world of all the God-forsaken moths. I think God has bigger plans for you. A beaming Barnabas looks at Eliashib, who is jolted out from his trance-like state. Looking up from the grain mill, Eliashib sees a worn-out yet newly energized Barnabas, who is in need of rest and a bath. You look like you've been traveling for some time, says the resident, looking to prepare grain for the next morning. Barnabas looks at the man and then at himself. Yes, I suppose I have. Smiling, Barnabas then says, My clothes are so ripe and worn that they might benefit more from a fire than they would soap. The man laughs and asks, Where are you coming from? Jerusalem, Barnabas responds. The man's eyes widen. Jerusalem? Wow, you're far from home, my friend. Do you have a place to stay for the evening? (laughs) Yes, I have traveled some distance to be here. Barnabas pauses, and no, I do not have lodging for the evening. If you would be so kind to put me up for the night, I can get things figured out once I've gotten some rest. Would you be okay with that? Of course, the host responds. Give me just a moment. Putting aside his mortar and pestle, Eliashib stands and asks Barnabas to wait. He heads to the door leading inside the home and brings his wife out to meet their guest. Bringing her outside, Eliashib says, Allow me to introduce you to my wife, Ahinom. She will be happy to arrange a place for you to clean up and rest. Have you eaten? At first, his wife doesn't look pleased, but her demeanor changes when she sees their unexpected guests. Yes, Ahinom says. With new purpose, a dutiful Ahinom looks at Barnabas and identifies what is needed. Let's get you cleaned up. There's a bath nearby. It's new and it's very nice. Do you have some money to make use of it? I can lend you some of Eliashib's clothes for the evening while I clean yours. That sounds more than fine, Barnabas responds. 
He points to a small bag strapped along his shoulder and says, I have money and I have a change of clothes, but I would so deeply appreciate you cleaning these. He lifts up a part of his worn out robes to point out how filthy they are. She laughs and then turns to Eliashib. Quickly get him some food while I get things arranged for him. He must be hungry. Eliashib agrees and checks to see if there are any remaining embers in the oven. Refreshed from a night's rest, Barnabas wakes and joins in to help with the morning rituals. When time allows, Barnabas sits to visit with his younger hosts. I appreciate your willingness to wash my clothes. With several days of wear, you can imagine how bad they get. Ahinoam replies, yeah, they were pretty bad. She then looks over at Eliashib while pouring tea into three small mugs. I've seen and smelled worse, though. What? says Eliashib, who seats himself across from their guest. A guy's got to work. Besides, rumor has it that you like my smell, he teases. She isn't amused. Changing the subject, Ahinoam looks over at Barnabas, who seems to be enjoying the banter, and says, So, what brings you all the way here from Jerusalem? That's an awfully long way to journey. I haven't been more than fifty or so miles from here. So you were raised here, Barnabas asks. Yeah, my family has been here, well, for a long time, she scratches her head in thought. I think my family has been here since they were relocated here some 200 years ago. If I understand correctly, they were forced to be relocated by Antiochus Epiphanes during the time of the Seleucid occupation. Our people were brought from Nineveh to Antioch against their will, but, well, (laughs) we Jews are used to that. (laughs) Yes, we are, Barnabas agrees. Changing the subject, Barnabas stands to open the door. He extends a hand to get a feel of the temperature. I hope it warms up today. Otherwise, my clothes will take weeks to get dry. Opening the door to prepare for the day, Ahanom steps out to care for the animals that slept under the porch. She lifts a heavy clay bowl filled with feed and grabs some other items to take with her. Let me help you out with that, Barnabas says. Oh, thanks, but I've got it. It's part of my routine, she responds. Stepping out in the chilled air, Barnabas offers to light a fire. She agrees, and he searches for a fireboard and some tinder. Barnabas then looks back to see her pointing at a cabinet by the inside oven. Oh, okay, I'll get things started then, he offers. Bringing a small limestone slab down from the shelf next to the oven, Barnabas gets to work. Suddenly patting his guest on his shoulder, Eliashib offers a good morning greeting. Sleep well, my friend. Yes, Barnabas says. I slept a king's sleep. I am truly grateful for your hospitality. Think nothing of it. We're glad you're safe and that you're here, his host responds. Looking around the room, then back at Barnabas, Eliashib asks, So, again, what brings you here anyway? Usually it's us going down to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, not the other way around. You're right, I'm neither a merchant, nor am I doing a reverse pilgrimage. Barnabas laughs at the thought. I'm here to see what God is up to in Antioch. Here in Antioch, Eliashib offers. What does God have to do with Antioch? Well, that's the question that we've been asking as well, Barnabas responds. I don't think it's any surprise to hear how crazy things have been in Jerusalem these past years. We've seen God act in some pretty mysterious ways, as if he's up to something really big. Looking at Barnabas with a new level of curiosity, Eliashib responds, Oh? Rotating a stick in the fireboard socket, smoke begins to rise and eventually catches the tinder on fire. Proud of his efforts, Barnabas says, There, 
That should do the trick. Lighting the kindling, Barnabas then says, Yes, very big indeed. How well versed are you with Moses and the prophets? Taken back by this question, Eliashib responds, Gosh, I don't know. I've been in the synagogue all my life, and I've been exposed to the law and prophets every week of my life. I think I have an okay sense of things. Good, Barnabas responds. Then I suspect you're aware of the promised hope of the covenants that God made with Moses, then later on with David and Jeremiah. Barnabas looks at his host for a response. Well, we have the law given to Moses, which was passed along to us, Eliashib begins. Yes, good, Barnabas responds. Go on. We also have the promise of a coming king who will sit on the throne of David forever, Eliashib shares, feeling somewhat put on the spot. No, you're doing great, Barnabas says, as he waves Eliashib to continue. What about Jeremiah? Uh, My mind is drawing a blank on this one, Eliashib responds. I know you've heard this, Barnabas says. Let me jog your memory, though. Beginning with a promise made to Moses... Towards the end of the second rendering of the law given to the children of Israel, just before entering the promised land, it was a promise that God would gather Israel back to the land once and for all. God also promised he would change the otherwise stubborn hearts of his people. He would change their hearts permanently, enabling them to love him without a selfish thread in their bones. Looking at Eliashib, Barnabas goes on, Do you remember that, my friend? Yeah, there will come a day where God gathers us back to himself and fully changes our hearts from rocks to tender flesh, fully responding to his nature and his will. But didn't Ezekiel say that? Eliashib offers. Yes, he did, Barnabas counters, but he wasn't the only one. Using a new covenant, God promised Jeremiah that he would fully gather Israel together and permanently change their hearts, eternally forgiving them of their sin problem. Well, okay, so what of all this, Eliashib offers? Barnabas pauses to choose his words carefully. That day has come. Eliashib, that's why I'm here. Wait, you're saying God has brought the new covenant promises upon us? Eliashib offers as a genuine question. Barnabas responds, yes. The new covenant promises have been unleashed, and King David's heir to the throne has come. Wait, what are you saying, Eliashib asks with utter surprise in his voice. Barnabas continues, I'm saying our king has come, and he has unleashed the Spirit of God upon us Jews. Absorbing what is being shared, Eliashib grows skeptical. Wait a moment. You're saying that our king, our promised Messiah, has come. An enthusiastic Barnabas shakes his head. Our awaited king is a conquering king who will destroy all of the wrongdoing in the world. He will then place himself on the throne of David and rule from Jerusalem. Eliashib grows defensive. If our king has come, how is Rome in control? They control everything now, except for maybe the Parthians who continue to be a burr on their side. But the very fact that we have the Romans and the Parthians means that God has not restored the world as promised. There's no way this guy you speak of can be our awaited Messiah. I love the way you're processing this, Barnabas encourages. That's exactly what we expected as well. But let me ask you something. God is aiming to correct all the world's wrongs, right? Okay, Eliashib says hesitantly. Barnabas goes on. Well, if God is looking to kick butt and take names over all the wrongs committed in the world, then where does that put us? 
Elisha begins to process, what do you mean? We're his children and he will take us with him. Remember the new covenant promise though. God has promised to change our stubborn hearts and exchange them with soft hearts that will love him. Barnabas lets this sit. I don't think it's a surprise to hear how we, as God's children, haven't exactly been faithful over the years, not to God and certainly not to others. We've clawed, we've kicked, we've maneuvered to improve our own situations over the years, ever aiming to benefit ourselves, even if it has come at the expense of others. Let's face it, you're all about you, I'm all about me. Barnabas pauses and looks at Eliashib directly in the eyes. So what room is there in God's kingdom for people like us, for people in general? Thinking deeper, Eliashib stays quiet. If God decided to carry out his kingdom efforts without unleashing the promised new covenant, do you know how many people God would be leading in this new kingdom of his? Barnabas looks at an answerless Eliashib. That's right. No one would qualify. That's why God had to roll this out in a way none of us expected. That's why we were confused when our Messiah had to die. Die? Why Why would your Messiah have to... Something registers in Eliashib and his eyes grow wide. Wait, do you follow Jesus of Nazareth? Well, that's who I'm talking about, Barnabas grins. God would use Jesus' death to begin the new covenant. The promised heart transformation brought about the Holy Spirit. Remember God writing his laws on our hearts? The promise given to Moses, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah? This had to happen first before God would usher in his new kingdom. Barnabas holds up his hand to share one final thought. Only through Jesus' substitutionary death could God usher in the kingdom of heaven which is the very hope every Jew has had since the days of Moses. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, this proved God's plan to be true. Furthermore, more than 500 of his followers have seen him, including many of whom I know. Eliashib processes aloud, So you're saying that in order for God to start the kingdom of heaven, he first had to change the hearts of his people. Yes, precisely, says Barnabas. But... Eliashib collects his thoughts. Why did Messiah have to die? You mean the sacrificial lamb that comes from God? Barnabas leads. Eliashib brightens as if figuring out a cosmic puzzle. You're saying that Jesus is my sacrificial substitute? When we go to Jerusalem to sacrifice our approved animals? Barnabas finishes his sentence. Yes, you are aiming to be forgiven of your sin, right? Yes, says Eliashib. Barnabas continues, yet you repeatedly go to Jerusalem year after year after year to seek forgiveness, right? Yeah, says Eliashib. How many times do you have to go in order to make forgiveness permanent? Barnabas asks. A confused Eliashib is not sure how to respond to this question. What do you mean? Barnabas continues, if God welcomes only those who have been forgiven, then isn't the repeated action of receiving forgiveness an insufficient way to please God? That's why God promised the permanence of such forgiveness. The sacrifice of using animals was never meant to be a permanent solution. Instead, it was temporarily designed to help us become familiar with the need to be forgiven. The new covenant is all about how God permanently forgives sins and changes hearts. Thinking he has said enough, Barnabas lightens the moment. Look, I probably have overwhelmed you with all of this, but I hope this at least gives you something to think about. Eliashib nods and stays quiet for a moment. He then looks at Barnabas and asks, 
Would you care to stay longer with us? Ahinoam and I would be honored to have you share more with us on this. Barnabas smiles. Oh, I would be the one who's honored. I don't know how long I'll be here, but like I said, I've come to Antioch to see what God is doing here. We've been told that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, has been unleashed among not only the Jews, but also with the Gentiles. Eliashib straightens himself upon hearing this. Gentiles? What will you be doing with the Gentiles? I don't know just yet, Barnabas says, but I know God is doing something big with this. Barnabas shrugs and adds one more thought. Oh, by the way, I would very much like to attend synagogue with you and Ahinoam this Sabbath. Is that okay with you? Eliashib smiles at the idea. Yes, we would love to have you join us. We'll need to stop here for now, guys. The discussion between Barnabas and Eliashib would have been a discussion commonly held between the early followers of Jesus and the Jews scattered throughout the Middle East. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews was birthed out of this very discussion to describe the supreme plan of God carried out through the Messiah. On a side note, some academics believe Barnabas to be the author of Hebrews. The New Covenant promises a few things. Looking ahead from the prophet's point of view, the New Covenant includes three basic ideas. Number one, Israel's restoration as a people who finally get their land. Number two, New hearts have been permanently given to Israel and those who chase after Jesus by God himself. Number three, the sin problem has finally been dealt with. Forgiveness has become permanent. While I won't be able to cover all of the relevant verses here on the podcast, I've included many of them on the blog for your review. So right on the blog, there are a number of key verses to consider when thinking about the new covenant and the kingdom of heaven. So real quickly, just in terms of the verses that I'm going to be quoting here uh, that you'll see in the blog, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, talking about how the Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and soul and that you may live. Later on in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 through 28, and there's a lot there, but basically, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take your stony and stubborn heart out and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And then later on in Jeremiah, there's coming a day where I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. But this new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors. They will not need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Again, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. There are others, but one of the key ideas here is that God is going to make these things happen. Also, one other consideration is how the kingdom of heaven is predicted in terms of how it unfolds. Now, the kingdom of heaven and the new covenant, obviously, those things are happening hand in hand. Uh, and I will share a number of verses uh, pertaining to the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so definitely check those out on the blog. It's good to take a moment to see how God is unfolding the kingdom of heaven right in the middle of the existing earthly kingdoms. 
Daniel 2 talks about this, but the kingdom of heaven will be different and it will prevail. Curiously, the kingdom of heaven will not advance itself in the same fashion carried out by imperialistic nations found throughout history. No, the kingdom of heaven will advance by devoted followers who sacrificially give of themselves to love others who are undeserving. So when Jesus proclaimed how the kingdom of heaven had come, he spoke of how God was rolling out a new kingdom plan right smack in the middle of the craziness happening amongst the early kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven would roll out once the new covenant was put into motion. The only way God's kingdom could advance would be through those who had been permanently forgiven and changed by him, giving them the capacity to love others. Does that sound familiar? So the capacity to love is something that ultimately stems itself from God, and that's where genuine transformation is going to take place. So what do we learn about the kingdom of heaven? In Matthew alone, we have more references to the kingdom of heaven than any other biblical source. Well, this makes sense, considering Matthew's primary aim was to show how Jesus revealed the kingdom of heaven amongst humanity, in particular, the Jews who were long awaiting God's revelation. So again, on the notes, you can definitely check out all the different kingdom of heaven verses, and it's not even all of them, but there's like about 30 or so. Uh, So by all means, check that out. Finally, it would also be helpful to see the new covenant unfold from the New Testament perspective. While the completion of the new covenant will not come until Jesus takes his eternal seat on the throne of David and he begins his return cleansing campaign on the earth, however, the new covenant has been initiated. The acts of the apostles reveal how the Holy Spirit is the catalyst for the new covenant. The Holy Spirit's main goal is to change the hearts of the people who have become devoted to following Jesus. And some great verses are Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, uh, just talking about Jesus describing how his, his blood sacrifice is going to be a new covenant. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five and 26, which reiterates that idea. And then a little bit later on, you'll find specifically in 2 Corinthians 3, 3 through all the way through 18, talks about how you and I have been transformed as a result of the spirit of the living God in us. Uh, God has carved us as his letters, not on tablets, not on stone, but on human hearts. In other words, God is uh, having his laws written on our hearts in this respect, and that he enables us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Anyways, there's much, much, much more um, that that speaks of this. And finally, the author of Hebrews, maybe Barnabas, conducts an exquisite treatment of how the new covenant is at work, ever moving the kingdom of heaven forward. There's way too much here to process, but let me just let you know. Beginning in, in chapter 7, we see Jesus as a far superior high priest. Chapter 8, we see Jesus as our perfect high priest who ushers in the new covenant, which begins in verse 6, and replaces the need for the flawed old covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant or the law given to Moses. Chapter 9, how the Mosaic covenant has faded out and has been replaced by the new covenant, and how Christ is not only the perfect priest to mediate that new covenant, he's also the sacrificial lamb who's made the new covenant possible. 
And because Christ uh, has completely sacrificed his own life, God is now able to move the new covenant forward, granting us the permanent forgiveness of sins. And then chapter 10 speaks of our perfect high priest Christ, who has initiated the new covenant, has now made it possible for us to be permanently forgiven of our sin problem, rendering the old system, the Mosaic covenant, as no longer necessary. And in our new covenant standing, we may fully chase after God with the assurance that he welcomes us and empowers us us to live for him. Guys, again, please look at the blog. I do share a number of verses to help bring things into perspective. The beauty in all this is how God makes it possible for us to know him thanks to the fulfillment of the long-awaited new covenant promises. Well, that's it for now. Thank you all for listening, and may you chase after God this week. Bye-bye.